East-West Draftcast may not be suitable for all listeners. Hello, everyone, and welcome to East-West Draftcast. This is Jeff, one of your hosts. Your other host, Greg, where you at? I am right here, sitting at my desk. Awesome. I am also sitting at a desk, and the reason is because we're going to talk about magic, and this is where this is my magic talking desk. Funny, funny, because this is my magic talking desk. Wow. Did you get it from the Magic Talking Desk Emporium? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's pronounced IKEA. Oh yeah. But um, you know, I think if someone unfamiliar with the game of magic heard us talk about a magic talking desk they might think that our desk could actually speak to us well that's what i meant that my desk talks to me magically oh well that's fucking sweet yeah i you didn't mean that no i have a much lamer desk than you do oh bummer you should go to ikea they got some really nice stuff all right i'll check it out i hear they have meatballs as well they do and cinnamon rolls and pick a card lists. What? Not really, but we have those. Yes. And we're going to be going over some pick a card lists uh, from the last of the lists that Greg made when he went crazy and made a million lists. I had so many. And uh, and we got we got a, a cool topic to talk about afterwards. Um, we're going to talk about sequencing your plays in a game of Magic. Uh, obviously, focusing on limited, as we are a limited podcast. Yeah, but that stuff applies to constructed as well, except it's more complicated there, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, because you yeah, you have to think about it a lot more while building your deck too. It's and, and you do have to think about it while building your deck limited too. But anyway, we'll get into that later. Right now, right here, we got pick a cards, Greg. I'm gonna start us off with uh an actual first pack from a draft I recently did, but I'm not going to read all the cards because plenty of them are terrible. Uh, but pick a card, Smog Elemental, or Sepulchral Primordial. The Primordial Sepulchral, that's the black one. That's the black one. It's a 5-4 with Intimidate or a 6-5 with Intimidate. What is it? 5-4. 5-4. And when it comes into play, you get to steal a creature from each of your opponent's graveyards. Ah, multiplayer card. Yay, yay? Um, that's actually a pretty tough pick. Uh, seven mana is definitely a lot more than six, but a 5-4 Intimidate that gets you an extra creature is definitely better than the Smog Elemental. Uh, I really haven't played with it before. I've played against it, and I didn't lose, but it was a really crazy game. I don't think either of these cards is especially playable, to be honest. Although I'd much rather have the one with the swingy effect, so I would take the primordial here. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't I haven't hated this Mog Elemental. It's been it's been fine in my Orzov decks that are like you know, a little slower. But I don't know. I don't yeah. hate either of these cards. I don't think they're unplayable. The Smog Elemental reminds me a lot of the uh the Fortress Cyclops in that you're paying a lot of mana for something with just three toughness and the upside of the Smog Elemental is that it has flying, and so you don't really care about things blocking it. Love the timer. timer. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so are you on Primordial or Smog Elemental? Yeah, let's take the Primordial. All right, pick a card, Sepulchral Primordial or Scab Clan Charger. 
which is the 2-4 Blood Rush. Centaur Warrior. I'll take the Charger, please. Easy pick for you? Easy pick. Uh, that card's been really good to me. Um, yeah, it's just really impossible. Or not impossible. I'm sure it's possible. But when you <laughs> cast that, like, no matter what, how you're attacking, it's like, even if they, like, triple block your shit, it's still surviving when you when you beef it up. Like, it's such a huge bonus to the butt, which has always, not always, but has often been relevant, like, better than a plus two, plus two, you know? Yeah, I really like it in the uh, Simic decks as well, just because that four toughness will evolve pretty much anything. Yeah, totally. Yeah, Phil's a double roll there. And, uh, yeah, and a 2-4 is just, like, it stops a lot of stuff in this format. It's It's a nice card. And it's also a card that I'm not afraid to get active treason. Which yeah. is something. That's fair. What do you think about just forecasting cost in this format in general? Do you find that that's a mana cost you have an easy time filling, a hard time filling, or just kind of average time filling in pretty your easy. mana curve? I think it's pretty easy. Okay, well, let's just move on to the next card, and we'll stick with a green four drop. Just in time. Yep, pick a card, uh, Scab Clan Charger or Ivy Lane Denizen. Yeah, okay, so this is like, this is actually a pick that I've definitely had to make before, and I it took me a long time to figure out what what to take. And it, it's pretty deck-dependent, I think, but I think overall the 2-4 the, uh, is the better card. Okay, the Blood Rush allows you to be a little trickier than the Denizen. I mean, especially in a pick-one, pack-one situation, you don't really want to take the Denizen because you have no idea how green you're going to be at the end right, of the draft. Right. totally. And so a card like the Charger is just a lot more versatile, allows you to be a little bit more flexible with your subsequent picks. So I'd, I'd continue to take the Charger. Yeah, I love the Blood Rush cards just because, like, my four, the, like, when, when something costs, like, four or more mana, you could still use if you don't hit that am- amount of mana. It's so goddamn useful, like... I can't count the amount of times that, like, I've been stuck on mana and, like, had, like, you know, some cards in hand that were Blood Rush cards so that I could actually, like, get some value out of them just because, like, I, while I was stuck on mana, like, clearing the board and stuff with them, it's really useful. All right, so real quick, this one probably doesn't need the timer. Uh, Scab Clan Charger or Burning Tree Emissary, do you care about two drops enough to take it over the Blood Rush creature? No. Okay, me neither. Uh, moving on, uh, Scab Clan Charger or Frilled Oculus, a different two-drop. Ah, that's a two-drop. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you're thinking in terms of I'm definitely blue-green, then I think the Oculus is the better card. Um, pick one, pack one, though? Pick one, pack one. I would not do that because I don't, I don't like taking two-color cards at all. Pick one, pack one. Yeah, this format really rewards you for staying open with your first two or three picks. Yeah. Um, but, like, the power level on the Oculus is definitely high, higher, uh, it's, it's a really impressive, like, just think, like, just think about it as a 3-5 for 2. <laughs> yeah, or almost just like a 3-5 for 3 mana, and that's just... Huge. Awesome. That's yeah. really good. The, the, have you, I've found the mana investment being able to, or having to leave mana up to pump it every turn, it can be kind of a liability, Sure. Yeah. But with that said, you don't have to pump it. You can just attack in, and if they don't yeah. block, you just say, "All right, take one." Yeah, just to get get your free damage in. Yeah, it's just it's 
always been really solid, and I've even played it in decks that don't have green mana. <laughs> yeah, just... I've done that in some Demir decks just because I needed a 1-3 for 2. Yeah. All right, but... let's just keep going, because we're both on the charger still. Uh, yeah. Okay, uh, last green card on the list, Scab Clan Charger or Miming Slime? I'll, I'll, I'll take the charger still. Um, I don't like cards that could possibly be dead cards. How often is the slime a dead card, though? Not that often, but how often is it better than a 2-4? A 2-4 for 4? I mean, I think most of the time you can make Miming Slime a 3-3 for 3 or better. I'd say more than half the time. Well, not well. sure, for 3, but it's not going to be on turn 3. Sure, but I mean, uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like the 2-4 f- four for 4 that has the upside of Blood Rush is is going to be more useful overall. Uh, obviously, the Miming Slime plays awesome with Blood Rush, but... Um, and I haven't disliked the Miming Slime. I just... I'm going to take consistency over power here. Yeah, this is a situation where because it is pick one, pack one, I'd rather have the Slime because then I can build around it, you know? I can take cards later after this pick that support my Miming Slime pick that let off the draft. Yeah, I don't know. I... Well, I don't have more to say. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I actually would take the Miming Slime there, but... uh, Okay. Scab Clan Charger or Sky Knight Legionnaire? Uh, Sky Knight Legionnaire. Slam it. Slammed hard. Uh, There there aren't a lot of cards I... Like like we were talking about, like, I don't love taking gold cards early. I think Sky Knight Legionnaire is real important in the Boros deck. Like... Turning on uh, Battalion a turn early is super powerful. No and, doubt. And it does that. And not... It's the only common that does that, I think, right? Uh, I think Pretty so. sure, yeah. The only common with haste, I think. Yeah. And it's just... I've always been, like... If I'm a Boros deck and I, like... I'm drawing... In, I'm crossing my fingers to draw something, it's often that card, like... It's just it's just really important for that deck. Yeah. I, I've often found that just a 2-2 flyer in this format is just very, very good. You can do yeyeah. a lot of like really good things with a card like that in this format just because flying is a little fewer and farther between. It can block an early Cloudfin Raptor for a turn, maybe. It can block the 1-2 uh, the flyer, the Bat, Basilica Screecher. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was essentially the pack. It boiled down to me, uh, Slime versus Sky Knight Legionnaire, when I was making the pick. Mm-hmm. And I ended up taking the Slime because I wanted to only take a single color card. And because I have drafted Boros a lot online, and I was looking to kind of avoid it if I could. Yeah, I, I avoid Boros as well, uh, because I, I've also drafted a lot, and I find it a boring deck. But if I'm playing to win, I'm probably taking the Legionnaire there. Yeah, I think that's probably the correct pick out of this pack, especially because it is the only real Boros card in it. The only other white card in the pack is a Beckon Apparition, and the only other red card in the pack is the Burning Tree Emissary and a Structural Collapse. So you're cutting it off with your first pick, which is always nice. Like I don't like to let things like that influence my pick decisions too much, but it is yeah. a bonus of taking it in this scenario. Yeah, I think we've talked about how sending signals is not nearly as important as reading them, but yeah, 
and reading signals in this format is particularly important. Yeah, super important. Yeah. That was the end of that list. Uh, are you ready for list number two? Oh, boy. Yes, I am. All right. Pick a card, razor tip whip, or coerced <laughs> oh, confession. Boy. This is going to be a good list. You know it. Um, well, let me pick the card that I've actually played in a deck. Coerced confession? Can, can you guess what it is? Is coerced confession? No. It's Razor Tip Whip. Uh, you told me about how you had to cycle a coerced confession a couple. Oh, that was ago. that was in a deck. Uh, we never cast it though. Okay. Uh, but I have cast the Razor Tip Whip. I don't hate it. Eh, it's pretty hateable. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't I don't like it. I don't want to play it, but I've seen it in decks where it makes sense. If that if that yeah. makes sense, you know where. You can understand the logic behind somebody deciding, oh, I'm going to play a Razor Tip Whip right now. <laughs> I sided it in against, uh, I was a slow Orzov deck, and I was against the Mirror, another slow Orzov deck. Yeah, I think that's the perfect scenario for it. It's, it's good in Orzov Mirrors. And it was one of those things where I was like just scouring my sideboard, and I was like, this makes sense here. And I put it in, and I played it, and I lost that game. <laughs> well, did you draw the Razor Tip Whip or use it or anything like that? Yeah, I did. I drew it. What did you cut for it when you made your sideboarding change? Do you remember? Oh, something terrible. Uh, <laughs> my deck had some unplayables in it. I, okay. as, as you can guess, there are two slow Orzov decks in the draft. Yeah, that's not a good sign. Uh, yeah. Oh. I, I'm going to take the whip as well. I just think it does more, uh, which is terrible because it basically does nothing. Uh, <laughs> pick a card, Razor Tip Whip or Hydroform. Ooh, another card I've cast. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I cast unplayables all the time. No, not all the time. Only one deck. Uh, but um, this one's tougher for me. I think that the Hydro form is very rarely a card, but sometimes it is. And the I main deck this card. I've main decked it uh, because my deck was very aggressive with like a bunch of the the three one trample drakes and um, cloudfin raptors and stuff, and I just was low on playables, and I was like, you know what, this thing can just be like a goddamn lava spike, a and that's what lava it, spike, and that's what it was, and I it dealt three damage once. Maybe. I mean, it can also be a trick if you're really low on removal, yeah, or if you're playing against a deck with a lot of flyers. I think it's feels more versatile. Yeah, it allows you to be a little trickier as opposed to Razor Tip Whip, which is just like, once it's on the board, it's like, okay, <laughs> I know what how. what I'm doing. Yep. I'm going to hit you for one every turn with this as long as I have a mana. My guess is it's not going to be enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although, to be fair, a Razor Tip Whip probably does more damage over the course of a game than a Hydroform, right? Sure, sure. And obviously... For the... Like... For... I guess more mana overall. You have to spend five mana with the Razor Tip Whip to deal three. This is true. But it's pretty but it's pretty unconditional and it's colorless mana. Yes, but I mean who who are you kidding? What what deck are you playing it in besides like a control deck, which is only like white black or maybe blue black? Yeah, I've seen it in some of the uh some bad like crackling perimeter decks as well. Oh boy. Where it's just like Fucking fun. Going really deep, just getting all of the little, like, pingers. You play super defensive, you draft all the gates, you draft crackling perimeters and razor tip whips, and just try to, like, ping people to death. And it doesn't 
usually work that well, but of course not. That definitely sounds like something I'm gonna try later, though. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sounds anyway. like I'm forcing the issue. Are, are you taking Hydroform? Uh, yeah, I will. I'm probably sticking with Razor Tip Whip. <laughs> Okay, that's fine. But I think it's very close. All right, Hydroform or Tin Street Market? Yeah, okay. Um, have you cast that one? I have not. I have not cast it. I've also, like, I've taken it a bunch of drafts where I'm just like, hey, you never know, I, I might need this. Yeah. I have put it, like, the very beginning of the format, I put it in some decks to try it, uh, and I never, I never cast it, which tells you something. Yeah, notice you're not saying you didn't draw it, you're just saying you didn't cast it. Yeah, it's too it's too expensive, it has doesn't have any impact on the board. Um obviously it just doesn't it's just not a thing for Boros. Boros is way too fast for that card. And Gruel I, I mean and Gruel is too fast for that card too. I don't know. Just Gruel has better things to do for five mana. You could be casting a swine. Yeah, you could be casting any anything that costs five mana and Gruel is better, pretty much. Yep. So, yeah, I don't, I'm not a fan. I did like Tin Street Market the first time I read it. I mean, we we remember that episode, I'm sure. I don't know if all of our listeners do. They're probably yelling at the their iPods right now going, Greg, you love that card, how dare you? But, yeah, the card's bad. I I gotta admit when I was wrong on that one, you know? Yeah, what you like Debtor's Pulpit, too. What do you think of that now? I think Pulpit is good. good. Or maybe not good, but it's very, it's playable. Yeah, it's playable. It's anyway. much better than Tin Street Market. Yes. Agreed. All right. So are you still on Hydroform? Oh, baby, yeah. All right. I'm still on Razor Tip Whip. Hydroform or Hindervines? Say Hindervines. Hindervines? Oh, shit. I've never I've never drafted this card even. Oh, yeah? Uh, I've drafted it before. I wanted to play it in a couple decks. It always ended up in the sideboard, though. Yeah, I mean, the fogs that are mediocre have always been real bad. I mean, fog has always been real bad. <laughs> I think it's the fact that it costs three mana. If it costs two, yeah. I could see some Simic decks would want to play that card. Yeah, kind of like a Moon Mist. Like right. some, some decks played Moon Mist. It was generally not a good card, but some decks wanted Moon Mist. And I could see some Evolved decks wanting this if it costs one less. Yeah, it's like your tricks... You don't want your tricks to cost three. Um, I I don't like it. I'm going to stick with Hydroform. <laughs> All right, I'll stay with Razor, razor Tip Whip here. Uh, next up is Murder Investigation. Murder Investigation. We've ah, talked about this card a fair amount, but I kind of want to put it on a list with some other terrible cards and see <laughs> where, it, where it comes down. I'm going to take it. I'm going to take Murder <laughs> Investigation. Just to take it, or do you have a good reason here? Uh, no good reason. I mean, well, okay. My good reason is that I've I put it in a deck and I really I really was sure it was good in that deck. It didn't really it wasn't really good. And the one time I actually cast it, it it was bad. But I still feel like it was good in that deck. And that's because of righteous charge and just the fact that like most of my creatures were like three ones and three twos and five ones for that matter like yeah. cards that they really want to trade with and but it'll give me like a pretty sweet value when i when they trade yeah i guess the thing about that card is i could envision a deck like you're talking about where it would actually be good 
as opposed to a card like Hydroform or Razor Tip Whip, where it's kind of just a card you'll play if you absolutely have to, you know? Exactly, yeah. Whereas, like, you could try to abuse Murder Investigation in some way. I don't think yes. it would be easy to do. I doubt you'd be able to pull it off very often. But yeah. I can envision that scenario. Yeah, give me the investigation. All right, last up, and this might be too good for the list. It probably is. Murder Investigation or Midnight Recovery. Oh. Um, this is the cipher spell that returns a creature from a graveyard. Yeah, it's probably the recovery. I, I don't know if it's necessarily too good for this. I don't think that card's good at all. But none of, none of these cards are, to be fair. Right, that's the point. <laughs> but I think it definitely has the biggest upside. Yeah, I've been wrecked by that card before. I've done some really mean things with it before. Did you know that if you attack in and some creatures trade, the Cypher spell goes on the stack, so any creature that died in combat, you right. can get back with Midnight Recovery. Right. Like, that's pretty good when you're running yeah. those type of plays. If you... I mean, but most other Cypher spells are just better. And Sure. But in those grindy Orzov decks you like to play, where you could just kind of ship in all of your small creatures and be like, hey, if you want to kill this, I'm just going to get it back and then extort you some more. Yeah, it's, it's nice. It's, uh, I, I don't know. That, I, I think it's where I've seen it do the most work. It's just, like, put on a Basilicus creature and, like, it's like, oh, shit. Like, yeah. it just, it's just inevitability of your demise. When I wrote this list, I didn't, I hadn't really played with it yet. I'd only played against it, so I... Wasn't really sure if it belonged on the list. Now I'm pretty sure it's, like, by far the best card on this list. Yeah. Yeah, probably. I I don't know. Oops. Cypher cards are better than they seem. And, and, I mean, just as, like... A bad raise dead? The worst case scenario yeah. of it being a raise dead is, like, it's it passes the test of being a card that does something. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. you at least get a body. Where all these other cards, like, you're not necessarily getting anything. And even then, like, the worst case scenario is that you have no creatures on the board when you cast it, so you can't even cipher it. Like, what are the chances of that happening? Pretty slim. Like, you're probably at least going to get a dude back and then be able to cipher it onto something and at least threaten the ability to get more things back. Not that that's always relevant. You know, you never know, like, if you're actually going to have dudes in your yard or not. But, yeah, I think the card's fine, and it's just... At its base level, it does a lot more than every other card that was on this list. I guess worst case scenario, if we're going to be real about it, is you have no creatures in play and no creatures in your graveyard. <laughs> Which means, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, save your mana, save your card. But... Oh, jeez. Alright, last list. We're going to do some rares here. Ooh. Fire Main Avenger or Boros Reckoner? Oh boy, uh, Reckoner. Well... <laughs> yeah, ah, that is tougher. Um, the mana cost on Reckoner is a little steeper than Fireman Avenger. It is. Boy, every time I played against Reckoner, it's been so fucking frustrating. Yeah, that card's really good. I just look like, oh, I could attack this way. No, no, that doesn't work. Uh, if I block here, no, that doesn't work. It's just like, I can't deal with it unless I have just a straight kill spell. And it's really, really frustrating. Where the Avenger is really really powerful and obviously if you have battalion it's probably just better but uh getting to battalion can sometimes be tough and fuck i don't know 
Also, Act of Treason kills my fire main angel. It's happened twice to me. It's really frustrating. Where they steal it, get in with three dudes, and just target itself with yes. the battalion trigger? Wow. And gain three. <laughs> That's rough. It is rough. You're like, because the first time it happened to me, like, I know that, like, I didn't, like, see it right away. I'm like, oh, he took it. Oh, shit, he gets the trigger. And I'm like, I'm going to, like, two, huh? And I was like, oh, I'm, that's okay. Like, I get it back, and I get to gain some and kill this guy. And then he just targets itself, and I'm like, oh, shit. Like, now I, now I have nothing. Like, I now I have these two, like, crappy bears in play. But, anyway. Yeah, let's take the, shit. Let's take the, the Reckoner. That's what I would take. Worth four tickets. <laughs> <laughs> if only because you could potentially play it for triple white in Orzov or triple red in Gruul. True, although that's iffy. But All yeah, right. good. Speaking of rough mana costs, Boros Reckoner or Rubble Belt Raiders? I will take the Reckoner. I've heard some people say that Raiders is nearly unbeatable. Have you played with or against it? Because I haven't, actually. I have played, I have had it in a deck where I never cast it, because it was in a Boros deck. It was a mistake. Uh, or not a mistake, necessarily, when I picked it, but maybe a mistake to just play it. It was just, like, the mana cost was just too high. Um, and then I've played it in a Gruul deck, where I cast it, and uh, it has won me games. I have played against it. I've played it against this card a lot. I've just see, dealt with it a lot. And, um, yeah, it's really good. But you know the thing that the Reckoner does that this guy doesn't is that he can you can drop him on a losing board and and get back into the game. That's a great point. Which I've dealt with the Raiders where it was like, okay, drop the Raiders and trade with your 3-3. You know, it's like I'm still behind and my bomb was not a bomb at all. It was just a 3-3. You know, like where at least you're getting some sweet value out of the other one but yeah i'm probably still on reckoner too i just think it's a little more flexible it comes down a turn earlier and the ability to give it first strike plus the ability to throw damage around is just like makes it a little better like you said on defense and on offense okay pick a card boros reckoner or ogre slumlord Ooh, slummy slumming it are you gonna slum it no i'm gonna take the reckoner um the slumlord is absurd though it's very good it's just it. I think that it's just that it costs five mana, and I know that it's monocolored, so it can go in two different decks. But I don't know. The Reckoner, I've just it's just so goddamn good. <laughs> I just have, I've lost to it a bunch. I hate that it's a rare. I wish that it was a mythic, and if it was a mythic, everyone would complain. Yeah, everyone would be crying about it, how expensive right. it was in standard and stuff. But us limited players don't give a shit. I don't think it's necessarily too good to be a rare. Like I've I've beaten it before. I may have beaten it before, but it's definitely on the upper end of the rares. It's not like Drana. The trick to beating it I found is that you need to make the decision the turn that it comes into play whether you're going to deal with it immediately like go all in on like killing it right then or just let it or just try to race it. And it's not all like you don't always choose one or the other, like based upon the board state, based upon what's in your hand, you have to like figure out how you're going to beat the card, like the turn they play it. Yeah. And that's really difficult, but it can be done. True. Yeah. Anyway, anyway. Uh, you're still on Reckoner. 
I'll just stay with you because I think all all these cards are really close. Uh, Boros Reckoner or Frontline Medic? Another amazing card. Yep. Um, <laughs> this one's tough because it's so much easier to cast. <laughs> it's a lot easier to cast, and it has and, a similar effect on the game where, like, if it gets going, it feels unbeatable. Yeah, right. It very much feels that way. Yeah, I guess I... Uh, <laughs> I guess I take the medic. Uh, just keeping me more open... It's it's awesome in every deck it's played in. Like it's it's not it's not as good in Orzov, but it's still great. Like, it's really good in Orzov. Yeah, it's still great. It's just yeah, it's r- really good card, and it you know you can counter those uh, <laughs> clan defiances. Clan defiances. That's Aurelius Furies. Exactly. That happens all the time, right? Yeah, totally. I've actually gotten Clan Defiance in my MTGO drafts a large number of times. I feel like that card comes up often, yeah. I think I've drafted that card, like, close to ten times. Wow, that's a lot of times. Between Moto and real life. Yeah. I don't know, probably probably not that many, I'm probably exaggerating. (laughs) I've I've drafted Aurelius Fury twice, that's a mythic. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. All right, uh, frontline medic or ooze flux? Uh, I'll take the medic. The ooze flux is really powerful, but really slow, and yeah. also way more narrow. It's a lot more narrow. It's basically a simic only card. I, with that said, like if I was going into a draft and I opened, oh, up, I wanted to play something fun. Yeah, <laughs> if I wanted to have a good time and I opened up a pack that had like a foil ooze flux and a frontline medic in it. I'm probably just going to take the use flux unless I'm like keeping what I draft and then I'll probably take the the card that's worth more money, but I don't know. Is it worth money? I would imagine frontline medic is worth more than use flux. More, yeah, but they're probably not both not worth a lot. Yeah, well I'm I'm envisioning use flux being worth like 10 cents and frontline medic being worth like a couple bucks. But the mo- moto like makes values a lot different than, like, real-life prices. <laughs> it makes everything worth nothing except for, like, two cards. Yeah, it's really strange. All right, last up, Frontline Medic or Dusk Mantle Seer? Ah. Okay. Um, I guess it's still the Medic. I'm So I have played with Dusk Mantle Seer and lost because of the Seer. <laughs> okay. Um, which is definitely being results-oriented, sure. Yeah, because that could have happened to your opponent. Just like exactly. the draws were... And it was really frustrating. It was like three draws in a row where they hit like land, land, one drop, and it was like five drop, six drop, three drop <laughs> on the side. And it was like, I had I had the race easily won, but it was just like, I killed myself. And and if I had, if I had cast like a grizzly bear, I would have won that game instead of him. But... That's obviously a very rare occurrence that shouldn't happen. Um, and in general, the card's absurd. Uh, but, again, it's blue-black only, and I don't know. I just see the, the frontline medic being in more winning decks. Yeah, I can see that. I guess it has access to two of the best guilds in Boros. Yeah. So. With that said, I'd probably take the Seer, if only because I haven't played with it yet, and it seems Power it, actually, it actually seems better to me. Just slightly. It's better... Yeah, I mean, it has... It, it fucking draws you cards and kills the opponent, both 
It does both. Yeah, <laughs> while being a 4-4 flyer. Yeah, well, that's what, yeah, as a 4-4 flyer, it kills the opponent, and it draws you cards. And sure, it draws them cards, but the fact that you're killing them at the same time is... Yeah. It's all gravy. I think with that card, you just need to be careful when you're constructing your deck not to play too many large drops. Yeah, and that's the tough thing with Demir, is that you want to jam like all the shadow slices in your deck and stuff. Yeah. See, I wouldn't and, feel bad about having one or two shadow slices with that card, if only because... If I'm drawing an extra Shadow Slice, that just means I'm dealing an extra 6 ten. damage, probably, right? Yeah, 10 in the air, Yeah, essentially. So that, you're probably winning that game if you're drawing a Shadow Slice off of it. Unless it kills you, which it did. But, okay. yeah, I don't know. It's it's tough. Well, let's get into our main topic here, which, uh, as Jeff noted at the top of the show, is sequencing plays in a game of Magic. So just as a general overview, we kind of want to explain what we're doing here. We're talking about the order in which you play out your cards. And this is important because like the first few turns in a game of Magic often determine who's going to at least be ahead in the mid-game and often who's going to win the game overall. Uh, if one person stumbles on their plays while another, while your opponent like curves out and plays things on time, the stumbling player is probably going to fall behind, lose a lot of tempo, and lose the game in many scenarios. So we want to talk about why it's important to think about these sequences of plays and look at how to construct the scenarios where you're curving out optimally and staying ahead on tempo. When we're talking about this topic in general, it kind of comes down to three things. One is playing lands in the right order. Two is playing spells in the right order. And three is when you shouldn't play cards at all, whether those are lands or spells. So I kind of want to start with a discussion on playing your lands. Jeff, do you want to kind of jump in here and talk about this? Sure. Okay. Um, so obviously, uh, you want to play lands <laughs> every every turn of the early turns of the game. Um, Good idea. Doing something real wacky, right? Uh, maybe not play a land and then discard your. I don't know. Never mind. <laughs> I've done that in cube before, where I've kept a. A seven-card hand and intentionally not play a hand first turn to discard and reanimate. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sure. This could <laughs> that could happen in real Magic. Uh, that's a pretty rare thing. You want to be playing lands every turn, um, but uh, you have to make sure to play the right lands at the right times, right? Like the first turn of the game, it's about like you're you're generally a two-color deck, sure. Yes. Uh, and you might have some cards in your deck that cost two of the same color at two mana. So that would lead you to believe that you should drop on the first turn, like say you have a white-white spell in your deck, you want to drop a planes on turn one. In case you draw that white-white spell, you can play a second planes to play it. But sometimes you'll, you know, you'll have like a, the ability to draw Something else, you know, it's like you have to really know your deck really well to understand which land is the optimal land on turn one. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes you have a one drop that you really want to play on turn one. So play the land that can cast that. Um, but uh, also things like lands that enter the battlefield tapped. Obviously, most people don't do anything on turn one. You're going to want to play those lands on turn one. We, we're all dealing with that right now with Guild Gates. I'm sure most of you out there have an opening hand with Guildgate. You're not running out your 
your basics before you play your guild gate. You're playing the guild gate first. And and pay attention to this kind of stuff because I think that's the biggest thing about playing lands that is rarely like people rarely like care like which lands they're running out. They'll, they're just like, yeah, you know, if if they're not casting a spell, I should say. If they're casting a spell, they're like, okay, I need these to cast this spell. But if they're not thinking the turns ahead, right? Yeah. And that's that's the problem. That's where you're going to run into problems where you're like, oh, shoot, I don't have the right land on turn three. I should have played the, you know, island last turn. Whoops. Yeah, I think I think it's the most often overlooked kind of aspect of sequencing and magic is when when you play out certain lands. Like seven out of ten times when people ask for takebacks when I'm playing a game of magic, it's almost always can I not play the land I just played and play this other land instead? Or can I untap my mana and tap it a different way? Or can I I forgot to play a land on my turn, can I just said go, but can I put a land into play? Like those are the three most often like overlooked aspects I think of magic is like playing the right land at the right time. Right. Have you had similar experience with that? It's either the most common take back asking is either that or like uh can I not attack? <laughs> yeah. Those are those are them. Yeah. Oh or oh, I didn't realize that you had a crusade on the board or something, yeah. you know. I mean it's always painful when people ask to take things back. It's like, really? You want to do that? You want to ask me to like <laughs> break the rules of the game? Yeah. Uh, I hate when people do that. So, real quick, what do you? What's your philosophy on playing lands pre-combat, post-combat? So the philosophy, I am in the camp of, I prefer to default to playing them pre-combat. Me too. Because I don't want to miss something that maybe I needed more mana during this combat. for Like, that's such a stupid mistake that I never want to fall into. And there's a lot of things that can happen in a combat. Um, though what you're getting out of playing it post-combat is you're, you're giving your opponent less information on what to do during the combat. Like, oh, maybe he doesn't have a land drop. It might be worth trading, or it might, it might be worth taking the damage or something. Because like I'm just going to get ahead on board, and he's going to be stuck with what he has out right now. Um, and there are definitely situations where I play my lands post combat if I notice something like that could happen, like in my opponent's head. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but I default to pre combat because, like I say, like the more lands you have during combat, the better for you. Yeah, I'm the I'm the same way. There are a few exceptions where I will tend to play lands afterwards, one of which is if I have something like um, a scroll thief on the battlefield. For sure, yeah. You know, yeah. where I might draw a land I'd rather play, or I might draw a spell where I need to choose between whether I want to play this mountain or this island. Right. And that's that's the kind of stuff you got to think about when you're talking about sequencing plays of magic is... When is it important to care when you play your land and which land you play? And when is it important just to be like, okay, fuck it, I'm going to throw my mountain out here pre-combat and just take my turn as if nothing else is, is going to matter in regards to this playing of a land? And it's easy to get lazy, and I think that's why most people do get lazy with it. Right. I was going to say, like, something that uh, you want to keep in mind as well is uh, if you have a splash color... 
like you could play out their, your splash color land, say, like play out your swamp. You have one swamp in your deck or something to do some special thing, play some card, and you you could play it out, or you could play the island now and hold the swamp. And it's like it's important for you to decide whether or not you want to let your opponent have that information. Yeah, and sometimes well, it's right for for them to have that information. Sure, like if your opponent's playing discard, that could potentially make you want to discard a land. You don't want to discard one of your only two splash color sources. You'd rather just discard the like main color source that you have in your hand mm-hmm. a lot of the time. So if you're playing against a black opponent, maybe it is more correct just to be like, all right, here's my splash color on turn three. I'd rather not show this to you, but I'm going to just because I don't want to lose access to this land based on a discard effect. Yeah, or maybe you want to bluff that you have something. So yep. a, like a, a very commonly splashed card in this format that Greg has drafted ten times is Clan <laughs> Defiance. Yeah. Uh, when your Boros opponent plays a forest, that's the first thing that pops into my head. I don't know about you, Greg. It's up there for sure. And like if I want my opponent to think like I have Clan Defiance, I'll play I'll I'll play the forest early and be like, You're playing against Clan Defiance now. You figure it out. Like you you deal with it. When like I might not nec- I might not ha- even have it in my deck, or maybe like I just want him to play around it now because it's gonna give me time or something. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a uh, it's you got to get in the head of your opponent when you're playing Outlands is really what it comes down to. Yeah, it is a it is a place in the game where you can gain small incremental advantages that way, and they are small. That's the key word in that phrase, but they are also advantages. So. If you're trying to win at the highest possible rate, you should be trying to take advantage of this stuff in every game you play. For sure. Um, something else I want to talk about is knowing not only like what the mana cost of the cards in your decks are, but also knowing about activated abilities. One example is True Fire Paladin. Like If you want to play that card on turn two, you need to have a red source and a white source on turn two. Now, if you want to activate his ability or abilities twice on turn four you need to have access to two red and two white so if at any point on the first two turns you lead like if you lead planes planes you need to go mountain mountain after that to be able to activate that twice on turn four and that also means you're not casting that card on turn two you're casting it on turn three so there might be scenarios where that's correct but most of the time you're going to want to go like planes mountain or mountain planes and then some analogous corollary to that with your next two land drops where you're going another mountain and another plains. Yeah, it's definitely important. Like, uh, I don't know, like thinking about like cube drafting where I am playing like a blue, my, my favorite deck to draft or one of them is blue, red control. And, uh, one of my favorite red cards in that deck is uh, grim lava mancer, but you got to really remember that he costs a red to use, and so, like, you may want to cast a red spell and use them in the same turn. And my deck might be more blue-focused, and so I'm just dropping all my islands right away. But then I might run into this spot where I'm like, ah, crap. Like, I can either activate this or cast my red spell. Yep. And you just got to, like, just pay attention to what's on board. Like, the activated abilities, you can think of them as spells because cause you got to. Because you're going to be casting, or you're going to be using them just... They, they use the same mana as your spells do. <laughs> totally. 
So I, I want to talk about like kind of a, a case study here on a card we discussed in the pick card list, Boros Reckoner. So let's say you're playing a Boros Reckoner in your Orzov deck, but maybe you haven't drawn the Reckoner yet. Mm-hmm. What's the like optimal way to play out your lands in the first few turns? Do you just start playing planes, 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 planes until turn three on the chance that you draw Boros Reckoner, or maybe you have a a cartel aristocrat in your hand and you want to if you want to play that on turn two or turn three, you need to play a swamp at some point, right? So For you sure. can't just lead out planes, 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 and expect to make plays with black cards in that time before you're able to cast the Boros Reckoner. Right, and yeah, I mean, it just, I think that's a pretty obvious play in that, like, you're just going to want to cast the spells you have in your hand, since you have a big deck there that only one of those cards is the Reckoner. You don't you don't want to play like it's already in your hand if it's not. But if it doesn't cost you anything to play that way, then you should, right? Totally, and that's what it comes down to, is understanding, like, based upon what's in your hand, what... When is the correct scenario just to only run planes out there? And there's there's some minor advantage to that in perhaps your opponent thinks you're mana screwed or color screwed. Sure. Yeah. Perhaps your opponent doesn't know whether you're Boros or Orzov yet. Yeah, that's a big one. Because those are two very those decks play very differently. Right. And a card like Reckoner is so powerful that if you can cast it on turn three, that's gonna go a long way towards helping you win a game. As opposed to, like, playing it on turn four is still very good, though. So if at some point you use maybe your third land drop to play a Swamp, so you can play a Slate Street Ruffian or a Kingpin's Pet, it's mm-hmm. probably not going to kill you to play that on time, and then on turn four you could play Reckoner, and, by the way, maybe you'd have another land up to... Uh, oh, never mind, that wouldn't work. You wouldn't have a ma- You wouldn't have the land up to give it first strike because you would have played a Swamp, but... That kind of scenario, I guess. Moral of the story: just play mono white. Yeah. Guys. <laughs> or or play reckoner in Boros decks as opposed to Orzov. Yeah, well, obviously, then then you don't have to think about it at all. How great right. would that be? But you could, I mean, but like there are tons of cards that are like that though, that where it is important to think about. Like uh, when when I had the uh, Rubble Belt Raiders in my Boros deck, I was that was definitely always on my mind. And it was always tough because it there's a lot, there's a lot of advantage to having say two planes out and two mountains out on turn four because like maybe I have like a martial glory and I want to cast my white red spell my uh, Wojak halberdiers or something right and yep. it's like you have to figure out like where where do you draw the line <laughs> yeah. of of like where am I am I actually getting value out of playing to get this card out as fast as possible over like just playing my spells more efficiently that I have right that I could do right now you know totally and one of the things that I mean the more we talk about this the more it should be very apparent that you should be trying to build good mana bases as well or decks that have good mana bases so mm-hmm. that these pro- these don't become problems for you while you're playing your games like if right. you have a deck that's not too heavily dependent upon your second color as opposed to your first color you're you're going to be a lot better off as far as being able to make the optimal sequence of plays in the beginning of a game. Right. I mean, and when like when you look at cards like Reckoner and an Orzov deck, like don't don't kid yourself and throw that Reckoner in th- the three spot of your curve when you're looking at your mana curve. Yeah, that's a four or a five drop probably. Yeah, and and it's 
it's important to think about that when you're building your deck because, like, you know, curve spots can be empty even though they look full. And it's it's a dangerous thing to have an empty curve spot, especially in the early turns of the game. Yeah. So we've been talking a lot about playing lands. I want to talk a little bit about when you should sandbag lands, when you, when you should keep them in your hand. Yeah. A lot of the times it's important to, I don't know, not give away information, right? But at some point, if I draw a card, play a land, and then don't do anything with my umpteen amount of mana on the board, my opponent probably knows I don't have anything good, you know? Especially right. if I do that multiple turns in a row while I'm just getting beat down. Mm-hmm. So when is it important just to play all your lands out there? Uh, one of the cases Jeff and I came up with was, do you have any X spells in your deck? A card like Clan Defiance, like Aurelia's Fury, where you benefit from just putting all your lands onto the battlefield. So if you do draw that Clan Defiance, you're getting the most value out of that card at that particular moment. Right. What else? Uh, what other scenarios can you imagine where you should just run your lands out there no matter what? Like even if it shows that you have nothing in hand. Well, uh, I mean, you might want to cast two spells in a turn um, at some point, and there could be cards like when we mentioned. Uh, in the pick of cards, like, um, God, I don't even remember the name of it, the Terrible Ray's Dead. Oh, yeah, Midnight Recovery. Midnight Recovery that actually, like, you're going to want to be spending a lot of mana the turn you cast that. Like, you don't think of your your deck having any eight drops, but you could tap out for eight mana, like, with no cards in hand if you draw that Midnight Recovery because you're going to want to cast the card you you get back. Yep. Along the same lines, there are often cards in your deck where you're going to want to play them and have mana to activate their abilities on the same turn. Mm-hmm. Artifacts are often like that. The uh, key runes are a good example. If you maybe you want to block with an Orzhov key rune after, like, on the same turn that you play it. Cards like True Fire Paladin. Guild Mages. Guild Mages. Because yep. not everything just comes into play and sits there. Like, some of the things that you play will have something to do if you have mana available. And... If you were sandbagging that one land that would have given you the opportunity to do that, like then you're kind of in a tough spot. Now, here's where I should mention that if you're only sandbagging one land at a time, you don't often run into that problem because you, you can just if, play that land. If you draw a spell, you can always just play that land to get you up to your maximum number of mana. Mm-hmm. But sandbagging two lands is some place where you might run into that problem. And that's happened to me before. And it, it, you just kick yourself afterwards. He was like, you know what? I didn't really need to like pretend like I had two spells in my hand, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, another thing we have here is that, uh, you might need to be playing around like mana leak type counters, uh, soft counters as they call them. Yep. When, when that's a thing in your, the environment you're playing in, there's no reason to hold lands. If like, that's something you're worried about running into. Like you should really be, be ready for that, not be sandbagging lands when when they counter your six mana card when you have only you have eight in play and like two lands in your hand. You know, yep. punch yourself in the face. The other thing about um not sandbagging lands is and this is something that like I really, really, really feel uh is the is the case. Um is that if you don't sandbag lands at late into the game like, and no no lands. Like, you just empty your hand. Every time you draw a land, you just d- jump it out there without a thought in your head. Your bluff, when you eventually do sandbag a land, is a r- is much more real. It's worth a lot more at that point, yes. And and it feels like your opponent will really fear what's in your hand 
especially in like real life games, when you're across from your opponent and you see them like kind of draw their land, and it's like you can see it in their eyes that they drew nothing, right? Yeah. And, and that shoulder slumps. Yeah. And when you're doing when it's when it's in your head about like I'm going to try to bluff him out with a sandbag, like you do it by by setting it up, by making sure he knows that you're not a you don't you're not the type of guy that sandbags lands. And before you even draw your card, think if this is a land, I'm going to act like it's a spell. Yeah. Well, and that's where like kind of the poker face comes into it, where you actually need to try and sell these things. You can't be the guy who, when he draws another land, just slumps his shoulders and says, okay, go, you know? You have to be like, draw your land, maybe look at it, survey the board a little bit, kind of glance around, think for a little while. I mean, don't slow play by any means, but kind of tank on it for a reasonable amount of time and then be like, go, you know? Yeah. Because yeah. if it was a creature, you would have jammed it. If it was a land, you've shown that you would have jammed it. So... Your, your opponent has to think at that point about what you could possibly have. I was saying, sometimes a sandbag is is just a spell, because that what that spell's doing is it's drawing you cards. It's getting your opponent to be afraid to, like, go for the win, or be afraid to, you know, get blown out by a card, so they're holding back, so they're giving you extra turns, and you're just gaining cards at that point. Yep. Every draw step they let you have is golden. Yeah. That's a free spell. And... Those are really powerful. But anyway, there's a real trick to sandbagging, though. It's not just, oh, it's late into the game, I'm just going to hold my lance. Yeah, I see a lot of people do that. They just kind of default to it, and it doesn't really help you if it's clear that all you're doing is sandbagging the land. And it usually is clear. It's easy to tell when someone's doing that. It's definitely, yeah, it's very easy to tell. Um, And most people will play into your things. As in, you sandbag early, right? And your opponent goes, okay, they might have, like, you know, some pump spell or something. I'm going to attack in and find out. Oh, they didn't cast it. They don't have it. And now they have now they have the information. Now it's completely worthless that your thing's in there. But when it gets to the, when it gets to the later turns and they don't feel like you're the type of person that would sandbag, then they might, be, they might fear, fear it because it could actually turn the tides in your favor. Yeah, totally. I think that's probably enough on lands. What do you think, Jeff? Yeah, that's probably fine. I mean, we could talk a little bit more about how if you play, like, similar to what you were talking about with the raised dead effect, if you play, like, a draw spell, like an Ermine Evolution, maybe it benefits you to kind of keep running your lands out there, but, I don't know, it's just kind of more of the, more of the same concept. Uh, so let's talk about playing spells. Yeah, spells are sweet. Yeah, spells are a lot more fun to play than lands for the most part. And I want to lead off with saying that it's important to remember that playing spells in the proper order doesn't necessarily mean playing your best spells as soon as possible. And there are a lot of reasons that this is the case. I mean, one is, do you want to try and draw out your opponent's removal spells? Like, do you want them to remove your best creature right away? Or do you want them to use that grizzly spectacle on the second best creature in your hand before you play the best creature in your hand? Sometimes the quote-unquote worst spells in your deck can better synergize with the other cards in your hand, you know? Yeah. Like, I'd rather put a madcap skills on a creature that I care less about. I'd rather get, if I'm going to get two for one, I'd rather get two for one on my armored transport than on my Sky Knight Legionnaire, you know? Mm-hmm. And you put something important here, which is to know your deck's plan. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, so when you're building a deck, it's it's really important to build it with 
a plan in mind. Like, is this... I mean, if we go to the very simple aspects of magic, is this aggro or control? Or, I mean, there's other sub parts to that, or combo even, but that's not really a thing anymore, for limited anyway. But know your deck's plan. So, if you drafted an aggro deck, and you have a sequence of plays you could do, um, one maybe gets out uh, a card that you feel is, like, the the stronger card, but, what like, one sequence of plays gets out a card that's the stronger card. Another sequence of plays deals more damage to your opponent. The correct play is probably just to deal more damage to your opponent. And it's it's the case, like, the opposite way, I guess, if you're a slow controlling deck, is, like, you might want the utility thing in play earlier and not care so much about your opponent's life total right away because you know that in the late game you get to take over. And if this utility thing is going to save you cards in the meantime, then that's what you want to do. Yeah, so... It, it ultimately comes down to knowing what you're actually trying to accomplish. Like, what's your goal based upon what's in your hand? And it's important to understand where you're going at all times. And we've talked about this on the podcast before, way back in the day, where, yeah, sometimes you need to make a play that may seem suboptimal to stay on plan, to right. better your chances of winning the game that you're trying to win, not playing into what your opponent's like trying to make you feel like you need to do or what like the magic community tells you you should do like if if prevailing wisdom is that you need to jam your madcap skills onto whatever your two drop was in boros that might be true most of the time it might be true none of the time it it just depends on what your deck is actually trying to do like maybe you're a more controlling boros deck for some reason and you happen to have a madcap skills in your deck anyway you might still rather just play out something like a uh a Basilica Guards, the 1-4 Defender with Extort, because right. that's more on par with what your your deck's plan is, what your goal is, and like how you want to win games, as opposed to what like how you would expect to win games with most Boros decks. Right, but also know when you're the beatdown, right? Totally. Like, even if you are the even if your deck is a controlling deck, maybe your opponent's deck is too. Maybe yours is actually the more aggressive of the two play into that. I mean, that's that's what you're that's how you're going to win. Because if you play their game, they're going to get they're going to get the they're going to get the edge on you later in the game. Yep. I want to talk a little bit about using all of your mana. And I don't want to talk too much about this if only because Limited Resources just did an episode on Mana Curve where they basically it's actually a pretty good companion piece to what we're talking about today. Uh, so I urge listeners to check that out if they haven't already, but just kind of taking all of the mana you have available to you every turn and using it because it's not like you're going to get that mana back later if you don't use it. Mm-hmm. And so this is why mana curve is important. Um, and right. you, also, you also need to be kind of thinking ahead. So if you have four lands in play and your hand is a two drop, a four drop, and a three drop, you play the four drop right now so that if you draw a land next turn and get to five lands, you can then play your two-drop and your three-drop on the same turn. Exactly, yeah. Right? So these are, these are simple concepts, but they're very important. But then, like, it's not a, like, it's not a absolute rule, right? Like, No, never. If you're, you have a four-drop and a three-drop in your hand, and you have four mana, and you think, oh, I better, I better use all my mana and play my four-drop, it's like, well, what if your three-drop was just the better card right now? 
just play the better card. Like, <laughs> well, just play something that's going to help you win the game better than just being worried about using your resources efficiently. Yeah, it's often the case with spells, too, where you'll have the option between playing a removal spell that costs less than the number of lands you have in play, or you could play, like, a creature on curve. And it's not, I mean, I can't just sit here and tell you, like, every scenario where it's going to be correct to do one or the other, but you have to evaluate those states at at the time and figure out, like, would I rather not use my mana efficiently and use this removal spell, or would I just rather develop my board further, use all my mana? Uh, and sometimes there's like a combination of the two where you're like, I'm going to play this removal spell and then I'm going to play another two drop, you know? Right. right. So this is, these are all kind of the same sides of, of one coin, you know, mm-hmm. or different sides of the same coin. That's how that expression goes, isn't it? Something like that. <laughs> all right. I want to talk a little bit about turn one plays. We, we kind of touched on this earlier, but when you're playing turn one plays, it's important to kind of look ahead in your in your hand and the plan that you have for your hand. Is it going to stunt your development in later turns? So the example I came up with was, can you play a precinct captain on turn two if you played a centaur's herald on turn one? The These answer are, is no. Yeah, the answer is typically <laughs> no unless you have a uh, what's the the shock land in white green temple garden. Oh yeah. Unless you yeah. happen to have a temple garden. These are return to Ravnica cards. So, like, yeah. Centaur's Herald costs a single green to cost, cast. Precinct Captain is double white. So if I play Centaur's Herald on turn one, there's no way I'm playing Precinct Captain on turn two, for the yeah. most part. And Centaur's Herald is an 0-1 that does nothing. Until turn uh, three, right? Yeah. And it's very possible that you would just prefer to play Precinct Captain on turn two. Right, because the sooner that card starts getting damaging, the sooner you get tokens to populate and all that fun stuff. So you have to figure out which is more important to your game plan at that instant on turn one. And in this case, it's almost always going to be, I'm going to play two planes in a row and play Precinct Captain on turn two. Yup. Uh, you, you have a, an interesting note here. Do you want to go over that? Uh, for turn one plays? Yes. Uh, so every card that costs one mana and is a permanent is not necessarily a turn one play. Currently in Gatecrash, uh, a good example of this would be Glaring Spotlight, which, um, for those of you that are wondering, it is definitely a playable card. <laughs> I don't know. I've seen some videos where people look at it like it's an unplayable. It's a unblockable. It's good. It's unblockable. It can also counter removal. So it's fine. Uh, it can counter removal? You can give your guys hexproof until end of turn. Oh, is that? does it do that? I didn't even realize. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's mostly playable in like blue-green. But anyway, you don't want to drop that on, on turn one. Just have your opponent immediately know that you have a turn that can be this big unblockable turn, you want to wait till the turn you're going to blow it, right? Like, because you're not, you're not going to do it on turn three. There's no way. So you just want to hold a card like that. Um, other cards like it would be like Brittle Effigy. Um, Even some creatures, like I can't remember the name of the card, but there was a, a creature, it was a one drop in black a few sets ago that just said sacrifice it, target creature, it's minus one, minus one until end of turn. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm uh, talking about? I can't remember the name of the card or even the, the format it was in. From Scars, it was a minus one, minus one counter. Is that the one you're talking about? Sure, yeah, there you go. Uh, parasite? Some kind of Parasite. Okay, but a card like that, you don't necessarily want to show your opponent that you have that in turn one, because then they can just keep all their two ones in their hand right. until they find an answer to your one one, if they can find an answer or whatever. But if you just jam that out there in turn one, you give them information where you... you 
basically just want to use that card as a removal spell most of the time. Mm-hmm. And you're probably better off just holding it in your hand, waiting till they have a one toughness dude you want to put a counter on, then on that turn, playing it out, sacrificing it on the same turn, you know? Totally. Let's keep going here. Let's talk about playing draw spells or effects and how you should kind of wedge those into your sequence of plays. So if you're going to draw extra cards on your turn, you should probably do so before you play any other lands or spells, just so you have all possible information to make the like following correct play. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really something like it that goes back to the playing lands. Yes. But holy crap, I don't know how many times I've done this where I'm just like cuz I'm I am the pre-combat land player um and I'm also the pre-spell casting land player usually and I will just drop my land, draw cards and be like, "Ah, oh, kind of wish I could play this mountain right now instead of that island I already played." Yeah. It's it- like god damn it. Why did I- it can it can work the other way too though where you need to play the land first to make sure like if I'm casting a divination to make sure I leave up the right mana like of a different color you know you want to draw into a specific because I'm trying to draw into a specific answer to something mm-hmm. now Very nothing's true. worse than when you do that and then you draw a different answer that you forgot was in your deck <laughs> that you can no longer play and I've know your deck people before. yeah know your deck that's what it comes down to yeah the other thing is. Uh, with playing draw spells, if you can do things that affect the board, like positively and aren't like kind of ways, like you can't get more value on them later or whatever, do those things before you draw cards. Like because drawing drawing cards is cool and all, but it doesn't actually do anything. And this is important, like because like so with the divination example, you're not gonna go turn two guy turn three divination when you could play a three drop creature right like that makes no sense you're not you're getting you're not putting more pressure on the board it's the early turns of the game when those cards are the most effective um draw spells are really powerful late into the game and just much less powerful in the early turns because you have so many cards already you don't need more yeah you want to impact the board first and draw cards later yeah and and i put a little sub thing that said this this could change if if you're gonna miss a land drop and you really you need to be hitting your land drops because you need to get to some amount of mana to do your powerful things. Uh, you might you might need to draw instead of playing your spell because you just really need to hit those land drops. Sure, and it should be pretty easy to tell when those cases are happening. For sure. You also have a note here about how instant speed draw can often be played at sorcery speed for better effect. Should often, yeah. Uh, it, unless you have, unless you're tapping out to use it, you could draw a spell that's a sorcery speed spell that you want to play right then. So, why wait? Yeah, I see this with looting a lot. Like people always wait till their opponent's end step to loot when there's right. really no way they're gonna block with their mer- merfolk looter. Like, right. why not just loot on your own turn, get more information for that turn's set of plays, and then play out your card? Yeah, I really loved the. Uh... What do you call it? The looter from Innistrad. Um, God, the fancy gentleman. I can't remember his name. <laughs> he turned into a, a big brute. Oh yeah, civilized scholar. Civilized scholar. I like I loved... fancy gentleman better though. <laughs> I loved him because he taught you to play that way. Like he taught you to draw right away. Yeah. And and that is something that I think a lot of people need to learn. I love that card. Yeah, that card was amazing. <laughs> 
We should put that card in the cube. It's not even good enough for the cube, but I'd love to just play with that <laughs> card some more. I wonder. I, I, yeah, it's probably not good enough for the cube. Probably not good enough. I mean, is Merfolk Looter even in there? No. All right. So we, we talked about this briefly. I want to come back to it. Knowing when you're the controller or the beatdown and changing your sequence depend, depending upon that and depending upon like the dy- dynamics of a race that you may or may not be in. The optimal play for whatever point in the game you're at often depends on whether you're the beatdown or not. So if you're on the beatdown, would you rather play a 2-2 flyer or a 1-4 defender on turn 3? If you're the control player, would you rather play a 2-2 flyer or a 1-1 defender on turn 3? The answer is pretty much the opposite for each case, right? Right, yeah. You you want to be attacking if you're on the beatdown. Surprise. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are cases when you're the control player where you want to play the 2-2 flyer to either start racing or to maybe trade with one of their flyers or something mm-hmm. like that. But again, it, it comes down to knowing your role, knowing what your plan is. So I don't want to talk too much more about that. But I have a couple right. of like quick case studies here. Okay. So like, if you're in a race... What Which of these two plays helps you best win a race? Playing a burn spell on a creature or going to the face? Probably on the creature because it's going to save you more life in the long run. Yeah. The real answer is that I haven't given you, given you enough information, right? Like, it depends on the board and all that stuff. So, For sure. Uh, same scenario. Would you rather blood rush a creature or cast it to chump block or trade? Uh... It yeah, de- it depends. It depends on what's happening. It depends on where, like, how much damage are you getting in each can- in each case? Are you getting more damage to your opponent by blood rushing the creature, or are you saving more damage to yourself by casting it and chump blocking or trading? Right. the The big one here I have is: Do you use removal on weaker creatures to get an extra damage now, or do you save that removal for uh, a better threat from your opponent? Right. In that case, it's almost like if you're trying to race, if you're trying to beat down, oftentimes you just jam removal. You just, like, get that stuff out of the way, I'm attacking. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Especially when it's a card like Mugging or something that, that can't kill everything. Totally. Um, yeah, you want to you wanna just use it up. Um, but uh, I did want to say something about who's the beat down. And, like, uh, I find that... Um, I good way to tell if you if you're having a hard time figuring out who's the beatdown look at what's in play like if, if what's in play seems at parity and maybe uh like you aren't necessarily attacking each other maybe you're sitting still or something or you can't really tell who's like who's the aggressor here look at the hand size if your opponent has three more cards in hand than you you're the beatdown yep <laughs> You you can't afford for them to to just play out those cards like because essentially if they never cast those cards then they never drew those cards and you need to make sure that 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 something like that happens like you don't want them to get the value of those because currently they're worth nothing and you want to end the game as fast as possible before they can be worth something yeah anyway that was just a quick aside no that's a good one uh, kind of along the same lines as that you talked about getting up to a certain maybe mana threshold where the cards in your hand are online. I want to talk about sequencing plays so that getting ca- certain cards online, specifically creatures with tap abilities, because mm-hmm. the, the earlier you cast those cards, the earlier those abilities are going to be relevant. Now, 
I think it's important to note that Wizards appears to have kind of scaled back the power level of creatures like that. Like, we don't usually get uh, Gold Meadow Harriers or or what's the Master Decoy type cards anymore. Not at common. Yeah. Cards that come down early and tap for a very powerful effect. Instead, we have Debtor's Pulpit, (laughs) you know? Right, yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't still want to get those cards out and have the threat of activation or the actual activation relevant earlier, you know? Like, Royal Assassin is a great example of this from, like, as, like, a classic magic card where you can play it out there on turn three and then it basically kills your opponent's plan in limited. Like, they can't attack you profitably anymore. Right, yeah. That card's really busted once it gets online. I mean, the danger of running a Royal Assassin out early is that it's a 1-1 that can easily be killed, but the impact it has on the game by playing it early is probably worth the risk, unless you know your opponent is, like, mono-shocks and mono-muggings type spells, you know? Then you want to draw out the removal before you play your Royal Assassin. But getting those cards onto the battlefield earlier is an advantage a lot of the time. Right. Now, you have a note here that talks about if those tap abilities have a mana cost attached to them, it's off, often the case where you won't even be able to use them early in the game, like a Zorichi Tiger or something like that. Totally. Uh, I was going to say, the uh, from Scar's Block, or not Scar, yeah, Scar's Block, sorry. Uh, the the blue card that put minus one, minus one counters and tapped things, um, that was often like not the optimal play of the turn you could first cast it because it cost three to activate, and you wanted to cast spells after you cast that card as well. Yeah, totally. And those cards are typically few and far between, so you don't have to worry about them too much. But it is important to understand like when you're going to want to get those cards online and when like you might want to play... Because like, usually the, the vanilla stats of those creatures are smaller than what like a normal creature for that mana cost would be. Mm-hmm. Like uh, there's that elephant. It's a 3-3 three, three for 3 and 2 white that you can pay a white and tap a creature. Like, three mana for, or five mana for a 3-3 three, three is not very good. But no. if you get a tap ability, like a, a Master Decoy ability on there, that's what you're paying for. So right. oftentimes you need to run that guy out there on turn five and save your, I don't know, your Rust Scarab for turn six. Ah, Rust Scarab. Yeah, not that those two cards are in the same format or anything. Nope. Another form of, quote-unquote, Cards that need to get online are uh, Ember Beast and Mog Flunkies, cards that require special circumstances to be useful. And so, how you have to like think about? Excuse me, you have to think about how you're going to best use those cards. Like, when are they going to be able to attack and block in profitable ways relative to the other cards in your hand? Because they require other creatures to be useful. Totally, yeah. I mean, the big thing that I have seen is people running Mog Flunkies out uh, on an empty board into another creature the next turn, which just makes no sense because it, Mog Flunkies essentially has double summoning sickness at that point. Yes. And and you just like it's just way more worth playing the first cre- the other creature first, and then the Flunkies. Because, like, it only gets so many sickness once. <laughs> yeah, now that flies out the window if you have a, a haste creature, if you have um, a Skynet Legionnaire, you know? Absolutely, yeah. So speaking of red creatures and Skynet Legionnaire, I have a couple more case studies 
some like opening hands and, and I just kind of want to run through them and talk about what the proper, what we think the proper sequence of plays would be. So the first sample hand I have here is Wojek Halbadiers, Sky Knight Legionnaire, Ember Beast, and Court Street Denizen. Wojek Halbadiers is coming down on turn two. We know that. Yes. What are you playing on turn three, Jeff? Assuming you have the mana to do so. Probably the beast. I'm, it's possibly depending on my opponent, but probably not depending on my opponent because the the what the beast does is it allows me to play the legionnaire next turn, um, trigger my battalion on my halberdiers and get a lot more damage in with the ember beast than with the denizen. Um, with the denizen, I could, if I play the denizen before the legionnaire, I could also um, I could tap something instead, but generally a three two first strike, a three four, and a two two flyer won't be able to be blocked prop, uh, profitably. Right. Now, if, um, let's say you're on the draw and they play something like a... Uh, let's say they play a Basilica Guards on turn three, and then it gets to be your turn three. Maybe mm-hmm. you would rather play the Denizen so that you could tap that down on the following turn. Yeah, possibly. Possibly, but, but, but not, it's not, not necessarily. necessarily. Yeah, it's not necessarily getting in more damage, really. No. Um, I mean, it is that turn, but... It, will it in this, the subsequent turns when, you know, the Denizen could have been, like, it's not, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I think but. the default is Halberdier's Ember Beast Legionnaire, but I could even see some scenarios where you go Halberdier's Ember Beast Denizen Legionnaire so that you could get a, get a tap in with there as well. You wouldn't get, get the Battalion on Halberdier's on turn four, but right. you, I mean, a 3-2 can often still attack fine on turn four in this format. True, um, but but Legionnaire is last, pretty much always. Yeah, or or third in this case, if you want to really beat down. Right, right, right. Right. But yeah, yeah. You want to top out with that typically when you want to make your big big attack. Yeah, don't play the Legionnaire in turn three. Is what it comes down to. Okay, so next hand: Foundry Street Denizen, Daring Skyjack, Firefist Striker, and Skinbrand Goblin. Denizen yeah. on turn one. Obvious. Yes. Easy. Turn two, what are you playing? Yeah, uh, that could be tough because I th- I think it depends on what's on the opponent's side, but most likely on turn two, the Foundry Street Denizen can probably attack as a 1-1 pretty pretty fine. Yep. Um, so the Skyjack is probably the play just because on turn three, attacking as a 1-1 becomes a lot riskier of a proposition, and then you're going to want to be casting your red spells. Yeah. I think the big thing to take away here is that Skin Brand Goblin is almost definitely not... Cool. The play? Not ever, yeah. Um, the Blood Rush, you want to play your Blood Rush spells last. Yeah. Pretty much always. Okay. Uh, I, th- I think you can make the case for either Skyjack or Firefist Striker on turn three, or on turn two. It, it also kind of depends on what else is in your deck. Like, if you know you have three Sky Knight Legionnaires in your deck, and maybe you'll draw one, it kind of doesn't matter which one of those two you play, but you could make an argument for either, you know? Like, do you want to make it so they yeah, block? Do you want to make it so you have a 3-1 flyer? So on and so on. Yeah. All right. Uh, last one. True Fire Paladin, Daring Skyjack, Armored Transport, Assault Griffin, and Cinder Elemental. This is actually from a, uh, a hand I had. So turn two, Paladin or Skyjack? Uh, probably the Skyjack because you're going to be tapping out for a while here. Uh, so the Paladin's abilities are less relevant. Um, of course, the Paladin can attack into two power stuff or two toughness stuff that they'll be afraid to block because they don't want to give you a free 
free creature. Yeah, for that reason, I think it's the Paladin on turn two. Mm. Just because the threat of activation makes it so they straight can't block most of the time in their early turns. Yeah, but... Yeah, well, I, I, it depends on what I'm playing against, but... The Skyjack gets in more damage as well, um, assuming that they aren't trading. And, yeah, I don't know. It's it's tough. The other, the other way to look at it is you could play Skyjack on turn two, Transport on turn three, and then you could play Paladin and leave up two mana to activate it on turn four for either first strike to block. But at that point on turn four, you'd probably just rather be playing the Assault Griffin Assault anyway. Assault Griffin, yeah. Yeah. So... I don't know. I think it's close between the Skyjack and the Paladin. I'd play the Paladin first. And yeah. leave up Threat of Activation when you attack with that. Play the Transport on turn two, or the Skyjack on turn... Excuse me, turn three. And then Assault Griffin on turn four. Yeah, I mean, if my opponent has gotten a turn two before me, and they played a turn two creature, I'd definitely play the Paladin. But the chance of them not getting to play a turn two play, and I'm going before them... I'm going to go for the greed and, and get the extra damage in. <laughs> All right, and that's fair, and especially because in a deck like Boros, that's often what it comes down to, is getting in the most damage early and taking advantage of that. Yeah. So, uh, turn four, any argument for Cinder Elemental over Assault Griffin? Almost never. Yeah. It's but, Yeah, that's the last thing you do, and... It's real slow. <laughs> you, you definitely want to get the transport and the griffin out there to turn on the battalion for your skyjack. Right. Um, and the thing is, is like with the cinder elemental, if you're casting it on four, you're probably also not casting griffin on five since you're probably activating elemental on five. Yeah. Uh, and if you're not activating elemental on five, what the hell are you doing playing it? <laughs> You know, you may have talked me into Daring Skycheck on turn two the more I think about this. Okay. And the reason I'm saying that is because later, in, like if I just go Skycheck, Armored Transport, Assault Griffin, that's a pretty awesome start. Yeah, that's a big force of evasive surviving yeah. attacker. And it's not like True Fire Paladin is bad if you play it late. If anything, exactly, it's, it's yeah. better when you have a lot of mana. Yeah, that's why I. That was why that was my snap judgment. Would okay. I think you're yeah. right, actually. Now that I, I think about this more, which is funny because when I wrote down this list, I was like certain that Paladin was the right play. Yeah. So I mean, I think depending on what's happening, it sure. Changes, but yeah, it can change. All right, let's move on. All right. Um, do you want to go over this last point I put down? Yeah, I want you to go over it because you put it down. Oh, all right then. Uh, I I was I said that. It's important to know your opponent's deck and play style. Obviously, this can be impossible on game <laughs> one. Like, it can't, and sometimes it's it's not though. Sometimes if you're playing live, if you're playing not online, it's impossible. They've even took a, taken away replays online, so you you literally know nothing every time. In person, like maybe you've been walking around and noticed their deck, seen it. Maybe they're a good friend of yours, and you just know how they play. You just know the decks they love to draft, um, and so you could you could have the, this information early, and you can also gl- uh, glean this information off of things they do in the first few turns of the game. Absolutely. So so something important to think about uh, is your opponent does your opponent have a ton of removal? If they do, uh, what we talked about before, uh, playing your your weaker cards first to bait the removal, so your stronger cards can stay in play, um, is very important. 
because, uh, yeah, if, if your opponent has a lot of removal, you want them to spend it on your worst stuff, so hopefully they r- run out by the time you get out your good stuff. A big one is, does your opponent play around tricks? Uh, this is the whole thing about thinking on levels, like what level does your opponent think on, and, and it gets really convoluted and complicated, but just just a basic, like, does my opponent, like, not block because they're afraid of the trick, or does my opponent not think about it because they don't even, that's not even on their radar, you know? It's easier to do that in turns, or in games two and games three, if you've shown them some tricks, too. Definitely. To yeah. be like, I'm just going to attack and represent that I have this Blood Rush creature or one of many tricks that they saw in game one. Right. Then uh, your, your removal, like, is that best used on the cards that are in play? Or have you seen cards that are in their deck that you have to have an answer to if it comes down and, and by playing the removal now on the cards in play isn't necessarily winning you the game? Like, maybe you have to hold your removal. Yeah. And that you can get that from... Just knowing the format sometimes, too. Absolutely. Like, like knowing that, oh, this guy has a Syndic of Ties on turn two, I should just snap mugging that. Or, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. yeah. Whereas that's... if they play, I don't know, some other two-drop that's not as important. Uh, I guess they're all important in this format, so that's not a great <laughs> example. But if they no. play, like, a Slate Street Ruffian on turn three, you're like, I don't need to mug that because I can save this mugging for something that's more important on turn on a later turn. Right. Yeah, I have a little case study on here of you have an opening hand of Syndic of Tithes and Basilica's Creature. Um, you can play either on turn two. Uh, it's important to know your opponent to figure out what the card is to play, unless, of course, you have some kind of something important on turn three that goes really well with Screecher or something. But if your opponent is going to have a play on turn two that they could trade with a ground guy, as in the Syndicate Tides, then play this creature. Uh, it's going to get in an extra damage, and either whichever one you play, you're going to get to extort on turn three, right? Correct. Um, and then if if they're if you've seen their deck, if you've played against them already, and they didn't have turn two plays very often, then the Syndicate Tides is just going to get in the extra damage on turn on if you play it early, because they're most likely not going to be able to block it. So it's just getting a free damage. So play that. All right. So we've talked a little bit about playing cards and playing cards on sequence. I want to talk a little bit. We've been going for a while. I don't want to spend too long on this subject, and we have a lot written down here, so we might fly <laughs> through some of it. When to, when to not play cards, you know? So yeah. when, when is it important to not use up all your mana? When is it not? When is it important to not throw a land out there? We've talked a little bit about that. Uh, this is more, more for spells. Um, so first let's talk about... Keeping up an instant, the ability to play an instant on your opponent's turn. This is definitely more viable when you're ahead on the board. If you're behind, it doesn't really make sense for you to leave up an instant for your opponent's turn when you could. they could. Yeah, they could have the answer. Right. This is especially important if your opponent's just going to play another creature on their turn. You might as well just main phase some of your removal sometimes to play around I don't know, a giant growth or a counter spell on your opponent's turn if they're tapped out. These are things you need to kind of think about. Unless they have haste, creatures with flash should probably be played on your opponent's turn just to keep information away from them. Right. We've been seeing the exception to that rule a lot in this set with Shamble Shark when you start with a Cloudfin Raptor, though. Correct. Yeah, Yeah, sometimes you need to run that Shamble Shark out there on your own turn, too, to pump up the Cloudfin Raptor and get in that first point of damage. 
So ultimately, you need to be like kind of asking yourself, is it better to main phase this instant or save it for my opponent's turn? Now, there are a lot of factors that kind of come into play there. Like like I said earlier, does your opponent play counter magic? Does your opponent play creature enchantments? If they do that, then maybe you should wait till their turn to see if they play a madcap skills or a rancor or whatever have you. And then you remove that creature and get a two for one, right? Right. You have an interesting note on counter spells here. Why don't you go with that? Yeah. So if you if you have counter spells, if you're the guy playing the counter spells, and you're you're thinking about holding it up for their turn, like if if you are ahead on the board, or so you, so you need to you need to evaluate the board. Like if you're ahead, then that could be a great idea. But is it is it going to be more powerful than advancing the board in a way that you can? Or maybe you can't even advance the board. You don't have you don't have a you know an option. Then obviously you're going to keep it up. But but it's really important to to think about what's what's going to be better: me advancing the board here or leaving up this counter for some potential play they could have because they may not even have a play. So missing out on a turn of playing a card it can be a really big deal. Right, and if they have like a mana sink on board, like a True Fire Paladin, they might as well just not play anything into your open mana and just attack you with True Fire Paladin and get you that way. And then exactly. you've you've wasted your turn not doing anything. Mm. Um, another scenario when it's okay to not play out spells is if you're playing around discard. It's often correct to sandbag lands or just kind of the more mediocre spells in your deck if you know that your opponent has some discard spells. Just right. so that you have some fodder to pitch to that and maybe protect other better cards in your hand. Um, now, if your opponent's an Orzov player and he has Viscopa Confessor, is that the name of that card? Yes. Then you're just boned because they're going to get the <laughs> best card in your hand. But at the, at, at the same time, you're also getting them to pay more life. So if you know your opponent's doing discardy things, then it's often correct just to not play things out, especially if it doesn't really advance your board state to play them out anyway. Uh-huh. Now, against on-board discard effects, like a card like Liliana of the Veil, you got to ask yourself, can I just play out all my cards and then have nothing in my hand? And right. then you avoid discard that way. That's the other way to avoid it, is just to not have anything in in your hand. So, I don't know. Yep. Um, yeah, I mentioned uh, Bane Alley Broker um, can hide an important spell in response to discarding it that can be brought back later um, for discard which is a really cool effect that Bane Alley Broker has. Yeah. You just hope they don't have, like, a removal spell to come after their whatever you, you have sure, it. Discard sure. Discard effect. But, yeah, no, that's, but, a cool, that's a cool interaction. Yeah. Now, if you're playing with discard, and, and by this I don't necessarily mean discard spells, like causing your opponent to discard spells. I'm talking about, like, looting. If, you're, if you have a looter in your deck... It's often correct to keep some extra lands or whatever in your hand so that when you do draw and play your looter, you have some fodder to pitch to it uh, while you're drawing cards with that with that creature. Right. Um, yeah, looting in particular kind of gives you more information every time you do it, uh, and it rewards you for having patience and playing out your cards because you can always essentially trade in a worse card for a better card with a looter if you draw something good off the top and have something bad to pitch. Right. And a, a, a point that really mattered in a recent set, w- think, uh, when is it right to loot with no cards in hand? Can you think of a, a time when that would be correct? Oh, yeah, if you're playing with some flashback spells, you definitely might want to do that. Hell, yeah, Anistrad taught us that looting with uh, no cards in hand is just straight value. <laughs> yep. It can be. 
It depends on your deck, of course. Yeah, you hit like a Desperate Ravings or a Think Twice, and then you're just back into a draw engine. Mm-hmm. All right, another time when you do not want to play out spells is not overcommitting. Now, if you're ahead, it doesn't necessarily mean you need to keep playing things out on the board because you don't want to get blown out by Wrath Effects. So knowing that you don't want to get blown out by Wrath Effects, how can you best do that? One is to just know all the potential board sweepers in a format. In Gate Crash, there's Merciless Eviction, and that's about it, right? That is it. I mean, there, there is there, uh, there's Gruel Charm if you're like all in on flyers. True, yeah. But for the most part, the only thing that can wrath a board of creatures is Merciless Eviction. So you don't really need to worry about that unless you're playing against an Orzhov deck or a white deck or a black deck who could be splashing for that card. Right. If again, like if you're winning, it's important to understand like what's what's the what do I gain in value if I play another threat versus like what's the risk of me getting wrathed? In Gate Crash, it's easy to figure out what that is because unless you're playing against Merciless Eviction, the like threat is very little. Like there's there's very little risk of getting wrathed. But yeah. Mm-hmm. You have an interesting note here where you say that playing the weaker creature is good to draw out a wrath that you that you might suspect, and that's almost always correct. Yeah, I mean it's it's just like we talked about with, with spot removal earlier, playing drawing out your opponent's removal. I mean that's the same case with the wrath. Um you could have one guy out and your opponent's just not willing to blow their wrath yet, and you just want them to because you want to get out your more powerful cards, just play the weakest card, and you know they'll if they see a two for one, they'll they'll go for it. Yeah, speaking of two for ones, just not overcommitting to the board also means not setting yourself up to get two for one. The biggest example of this is to be very careful with creature enchantments like Holy Mantle, like Madcap skills, you know. Right, right. Or cipher spells. Mm-hmm. But Cy- Cypher is a little different because you can, you still get, it's still a spell. You're still casting it and you get the first um, thing off of it. So, uh, I don't know. Don't don't be as afraid with Cypher spells. Right. Like, if you have a Shadow Slice or a Stolen Identity, sometimes that three damage or that clone is just good enough. Right. And it's like, it's one of those things where you have a Death Cult Rogue that's like your only card out and you have a Shadow Slice in hand and you could go for it and just just try to get them with the shadow slice. Just do it because holy crap, it's going to kill them super fast. Yep. And the value, like the the upside is just so the upside is you win the game, and the the downside is like I'm going to save this till like I'm pretty sure they have no removal. It's it's really just silly to do. You just yeah. just get your value while you can. You're just playing with the fear at that point. Yeah. You can also be careful with pump spells, and this includes blood blood rush creatures. Like, that's another easy opportunity to get two-for-one if you go all-in on, like, one attacker and they just go, okay, smite, you know? Yeah, yeah. Or, okay, grizzly spectacle, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So it all, it, all, it all comes down to kind of, again, knowing your deck, knowing the format, knowing what instant speed removal exists to play around all these potential two-for-ones. Right. Yep. Uh, also, playing around counter magic. Yeah. If you know that your opponent... Like if your opponent passed without playing something in his spell, playing a spell on his turn or her turn, yeah. again, like the the sirens go off. You're like, okay, why didn't he do anything, or why didn't she do anything? What am I? What what are they? What are the? What is their plan? And if they're playing blue, the plan is often I'm going to try to counter something. And yeah, keep 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 that in mind. We don't need to talk a whole lot about counter spells, do we? No, no, no. 
it's obvious, yeah. I want you to talk about bluffing. Bluffing, huh? Yeah. All right, so bluffing means you can sandbag, like we talked before, sandbagging lands to represent spells. You can also sandbag spells to represent other spells. So, like, you draw your, you know, I don't know, your uh, one mana, one one. I don't, I'm just going to make it vanilla right now. Say Shadow Alley Denizen. You draw your Shadow Alley Denizen, and it's really not helping you here. And what you really need to show is that you have some kind of onboard trick. You have some kind of giant growth effect or what have you. And so you just hold that instead of casting it can actually be more valuable. Um, As long as you're not, like, playing the whole sandbag all my lands game, I haven't been doing anything, your opponent knows you're not holding anything. Yeah. But if you can if you can pretend to represent that as a real spell, it could be worth more to you in your hand than in play. Totally. Uh, another time you are motivated to not play spells is when you just don't want to give your opponent any more information. So you don't want to necessarily... We talked about this a little bit. You don't want to necessarily give away inf- information on colors or cards you might be splashing if you don't have to. Right. So sometimes it's correct not to play out that off-color land if you're already winning or if you can win without it. If you're already winning in general, why show your opponent anything? Like, if you're going to win a game, you don't necessarily have to play out that last bomb creature that you were waiting till you got to seven mana to cast, you know? Mm-hmm. Especially in game one or game two. If you're going to a game two or a game three, like, don't show the opponent that you have the red primordial in your in your deck if they haven't seen it already. Right. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if they've seen it already, go ahead and jam it back out there. Uh, this was more important before they took away replays on MG, MTGO Online. But, sure. Yeah. In general, you don't want to get too cute with it though, because concealing information is definitely not as important as winning the game and winning the match. Uh, so if you are at all unsure, like if, if you're if you're pretty sure, like if I play this one last spell, this will seal it for me, then you should probably just do that most of the time. Yeah. This is a FPS fancy play syndrome. You can lose the game because you are trying to get the most value by not casting your spells. Never, never find yourself in that position because you feel like a real jerk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if the primordial, if you're already winning the game and casting the primordial is just overkill, don't yeah. do it. If casting the primordial wins you the, the game that turn and it, you can't win the game that turn any other way, cast the goddamn primordial. Yeah. Don't give your opponent another draw step. Yeah. Just win the game. Totally. You want to run through this last little list you put together about getting more value out of your spells? So yeah, that's the last reason to not cast your spells, is that maybe they're worth more later, right? Um, The obvious things are cards that have extra costs on them, right? So cards with kicker, multi-kicker, buyback, just uh, cards that, you know, give you more. Uh, Currently, in Gatecrash, we have a really obvious one in Extort. Um, When do you, like... When is it right to hold a card, not play it this turn, because next turn I get to drop a land and drain for one? Uh, I will tell you right now, the correct answer is almost never. Uh, Extort is just the gravy on your cards, and holding cards for that kind of value is usually... You're usually not getting as much value, uh, especially in the early turns of the game. Yeah, I actually don't mind falling behind on a turn if I have another play. Like, if I play a Basilica Screecher on turn two... I don't mind playing a two drop on turn two and extorting instead of playing a three drop. Sure. Because then you can do it again the next turn. Like you're you're always using that last extra mana to extort once. Right. 
But if the if the value proposition is net play nothing, and oh yeah, totally, that's incorrect. Yeah, that's that's pretty much always incorrect unless you're like unless you really need that extort trigger. <laughs> the other thing that we already talked about uh, are wraths. Like, how long can you hold on to your cards to get more value out of your wrath? Uh, it, wraths are really interesting in that, like, you don't want to kill your own creatures with it, but sometimes you do want to run a creature out there, so it forces your opponent to commit even more to the board. Yeah. Especially a card like um, like a Basilica Guard or something like that, that they need a lot to just, like, deal you enough damage. Yeah, and especially if it gets them to run out an even better creature, to, like, to run out one of their better threats. Exactly. Because then you're getting more value out of your wrath that way. Yeah, we talked about spot removal and, like, knowing your opponent's deck. Like, is there a more powerful card I need to wait for or just kill what's in play? And then uh, enter the battlefield effects. Do you play your card with an enter the battlefield effect that doesn't have a massive advantage this turn when you could get a better advantage later? Uh, Like a goblin shortcutter from Zendikar or uh, things that do similar stuff that I can't think of right now. Shortcutter's a good one, though. It's like, do you run out the 2-1 for 2 on turn 2, or do you save it? to falter something later. And the answer is almost always falter something, especially if you can play something else on turn two. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Shortcut was so awesome. Yeah, that was a cool card. Anyway, that's, I think, all I've really got on sequencing of plays. I th- it's been a little scatterbrained, to be honest, but I think we touched on a lot of good points. Yeah, I think so, too. Uh, it's been it's been a long cast, so... Yeah, it'll get a little shorter once I edit some of the uh, stuff out, but we'll... Uh, I don't know why I'm telling listeners this. <laughs> now I have to leave this in, right? That's a, it's so. official. All right. Behind so, the uh, curtain of East West Draftcast. Yeah. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, this has been East West Draftcast. Obviously, you can reach us eastwestdraftcast@gmail.com. Find us online eastwestdraftcast.com. Uh, we are on Facebook. Guess what? You got to search for. We're both on Twitter. Greg is more on Twitter than I am. I read tweets more than I tweet myself, but uh, I'm at JeffEWDC. Greg is at EWDraftCast. And what else, Greg? Oh, nothing. I do want to give a quick plug to... uh, I've been writing... I've been jumping into fantasy baseball writing for the the baseball season that's about to start. So if you're interested in that, check out thefakebaseball.com. That's some shameless self-promotion. Plugs. Plugs. Uh, Better than hair plugs. So... Yeah. Yeah. Check it out if you're interested. If you live in the Santa Cruz area, go see Greg's band, Dead Remote. Oh, yeah. You can search (laughs) for uh, Dead Remote on facebook and find us there we're like a three-piece punk band so if you're into punk music you'll probably like us all right i would hope you'd like us otherwise we're doing something terribly wrong terribly terrible all right guys that's been it that's it we're done draft cast out <laughs>